Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. It's a beautiful Thursday. I'm glad that everybody's... Thursday. I'm sorry, it's Tuesday. Ah, shows where I'm at. Anyway, um, I was thinking Thursday for some reason. I'm way ahead. But welcome to the show tonight. Uh, we've got a great show, and I'm really excited about it. We've got a fantastic guest coming on. My name is Charlotte. I will be your host for the next hour. I am the uh, owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We're 35 strong, up and down the state of California, and uh, we work nonprofit. Just to come out and help people, that's our goal. But this show is our podcast. And um, as you guys know, I'm also a journalist by trade. And our guest tonight is another journalist. and But uh, he has a great story to tell. And uh, with all the uh, history with uh, 911, you know, um, he's got an interesting take on it from his perspective of being a journalist right at and he was right at ground zero at the time when, when everything went down so uh pull up a chair grab a snack and sit back and enjoy the ride and don't forget to visit the show at www.californiahauntsradio.com so without further ado i'm going to bring our guest in dean rothbart hello sir good evening how are you Good. How are you? I'm delighted to be a guest on California uh, California Haunts Radio. Thanks, Charlotte. <laughs> Thank you. Tell everybody about yourself, sir. Well, I worked for the Wall Street Journal as a reporter and as a columnist for a good number of years. Actually, a minor correction to what you said. I wasn't uh, still working for the Wall Street Journal on 9-11. Okay. Um, okay. But um, I used to write, they have a... Uh, influential investment column called The Hurt on the Street, where mm -hmm. you, where I uh, would advise readers on which stocks looked interesting and which ones they should avoid. Um, and I wrote that column for the paper. Uh, the Wall Street Journal nominated me for the Pulitzer Prize in explanatory journalism for a long 10,000 word uh, expose that I did on starting on the front page of the paper. But on 9-11, most of the people who were working there and were caught up in the chaos were former colleagues of mine. They were people who I knew. I, in fact, Charlotte, had been at the Wall Street Journal offices and in the World Trade Center three days earlier. I was in New York doing reporting, stopped by to see some people who I knew. Um, and so, but for a quirk of fate, I certainly might have been there on September 11. Wow. You know, um, I know I wrote to you initially, you know, to see if you would come on the show with my experiences working at a, a smaller paper, obviously a smaller paper, you know, and, and what we experienced and a lot of our stuff, you know, we, we were covering just the local angle on stuff because Sacramento's the state capital. So obviously they had us down at the capital, you know, talking with, with, with uh, people from the legislature. But how did you research this book and how did you get into doing, I mean, obviously it was something that had to be done because... The newsroom was destroyed. You know, I honestly was not planning to do this book. This was a, if you will, it was an accidental book. Um, I have been working on a 
biography, a book of mm -hmm. the former managing editor of the Wall Street Journal, a man named Paul Steiger. Paul Steiger, the Wall Street Journal um, on 9-11 was 112 years old, so now it's 132 years old. Um, in the 132-year history of the paper, they've only had one managing editor who served as long as Paul Steiger. He served for 16 years. During his 16 years, the paper won 16 Pulitzer Prizes. Um, it had not won that many in the prior 16 years. It's not won that many in the subsequent 16 years. Um, and he then started, you mentioned at the open of this segment, uh, that California Haunts Radio was a nonprofit. He started a, a non, after he left the Wall Street Journal, he retired, he started a nonprofit called ProPublica. And hmm. ProPublica has grown from the time they launched it, 2007, 2008, uh, really into the world's uh, most respected and largest nonprofit investigative news organizations. So I knew Paul when I worked for the Wall Street Journal, he had been my boss, and I thought he was prime to do a biography on. I'm a journalism junkie. Um, I, I don't care whether it's Sacramento or my high school newspaper or whatever it happens to be, I love all things journalism. Uh, and so I wanted to write his biography. He's still alive. He just recently turned 79 years old. Um, and I set out months in advance of working on September 11th, September 12th, I, mm -hmm. I set out to write his biography. And I thought to myself, uh, you know, Charlotte, I, I thought, well, this book is gonna take me a few years to write. Mm -hmm. I'll knock out a few easy chapters. And one of the chapters that I thought would be easy would be what happened on 9-11 because sure. um, he was the managing editor on 9-11. Um, as I reveal in September 12th, the book, people thought he was dead on 9-11 on because they had seen him out on the plaza just across the street from the World Trade Center. And then he disappeared. He evaporated, if you will. And people at the Wall Street Journal really thought he was dead. But when I started to write that chapter, and I thought it would be a chapter in a biography, um, I uncovered a cache of more than a thousand real-time emails that that were exchanged between reporters and editors at the Wall Street Journal on 9-11. And it was a gripping read. When I read through it, I had goosebumps as to what was happening. And mm -hmm. I realized that in fact, there was a standalone book as to how the Wall Street Journal responded. Um, and so I set aside the Steiger biography. I took nine months of doing nothing but working on September 12th, an American comeback story. And now that it's out, I'm going to go back and start working on the Steiger biography. Uh, just again, to set the background a little bit, because I don't know mm -hmm. that we said it. Uh, the Wall Street Journal was located directly across the street from the World Trade Center. And so when the two towers collapsed, uh, smoke, debris, you know, ash from the Wall, from the World Trade Center literally destroyed the Wall Street Journal's headquarters. So people were evacuated, but they had no place to work. Um, mm -hmm. and they were dispersed all across the five boroughs of Manhattan, parts of New Jersey. They couldn't communicate. Most phone service, wired and cell phone, service didn't work after the two towers collapsed. The towers contained um, telephone, transmission equipment, uh, 
one of the buildings right across also from the World Trade Center was New York Telephone. Uh, it was badly damaged. So people couldn't communicate effectively by phone. Uh, we have to remember that by today's standards, the work from home technology in September 2001 was primitive. You know how people got onto the internet? Dial up, AOL, AOL dial up. There were no zero smartphones, at least not for consumers. There were no camera phones. Wow. Uh, so, you know, part of the miracle of September 12th, an American comeback story, is the fact that somehow or another these people rallied with about one tenth of the staff that they had on a normal day uh, to put out a paper the next morning on September 12th. And that paper, that one edition, won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news reporting the first time, again, as I mentioned, in 112 years that the Wall Street Journal won a Pulitzer Prize for breaking news. And so there's a lot of sort of gripping stories of journalists and what they did, and not just journalists. There are catering people, truck drivers, printers, compositors, graphic designers, all of whom really pulled together to pull off a miracle. And these guys weren't, I mean, these reporters weren't crime court reporters. These were people that were writing for business and stuff. So they weren't even specialized in this kind of thing to begin with. Well, you know, people think, well, they were reporters, that this was their job. But right. their job was covering commodities and mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve Bank and economic forecasting and the stock market and the bond market. And, and all of a sudden, it, over the course of 16 minutes... 16 minutes on the morning of September 11, they were transformed from these geeky business journalists <laughs> into war correspondents. And what they witnessed at, was some incredibly gruesome scenes, not mm -hmm. unlike what you might see in a true war zone. And they risked their lives to interview people who were coming out of the World Trade Center, um, who were fleeing from the World Trade Center, uh, some of the journalists, I would probably say, Charlie, probably all of the journalists, like so many of the first responders, really didn't expect those two towers to fall. And, right. and so when they saw that the towers were flaming and people were pouring out of the World Trade Center, many of them bloodied, covered in smoke or ash, the idea of racing to toward the World Trade Center to report on it, they never had in the back of their mind that, boy, these towers could come down, and if they do, I'm in big trouble. Well, that's a lot of what, a lot of what people don't realize with reporters is that the people seem to think reporters can handle anything. But the thing is, is that we all go to the same J schools. We all learn basic reporting techniques for every field there, there is. But, the, but it's like anything else. It's like we decide what branch we're going to be in, you know, where yeah. we're going to specialize. Yeah, you know, I don't know, in fact, Charlotte, if I had been there on 9-11, mm -hmm. whether I would have been running toward the World Trade Center <laughs> or running away from the World Trade Center as fast as I can. In the very first chapter of September 12th, an American comeback story, I focus on a reporter named John Hilsenrath. John Hilsenrath, the morning of 9-11, was an economics reporter. He didn't, you know, he was talking to uh, college professors and, and pundits uh, all around the country. But when the plane struck, 
he left his wallet behind. He left his jacket behind. He grabbed a notepad and a pen. He felt a reporter's duty to go mm -hmm. follow that story. Keep in mind, he was not a war correspondent. As you said, he was not a crime correspondent. Right. So he goes down to the street, and at first, he can't tell what's happened. But he starts to see all sorts of mechanical debris, airplane engines on fire, and tires, and passenger seats. And as he gets closer, he among the things he witnesses is a severed arm where the oh. finger was still pointing, you know, still pointing as though it were pointing at who were the culprits. And so he started interviewing people. And in the book, I have a photo of one page from his reporter's notebook. And he's scrawling in handwriting that's really quite illegible. It's hard to, to see, but he's taking notes on the whole thing. And before the two towers collapsed, people could still get phone calls out. And so mm -hmm. he called his wife. His wife was like in suburban Manhattan. She not in the in actually in Manhattan. And she begged him. She said, "John, come home. Get mm -hmm. out of there. Don't don't be there. I fear that those towers are going to collapse." Um, and he thought, "No, they're not going to collapse and I'm safe and I'm fine." And she said, "No, John, you have got to come home. We have two young children at home." And they need their father. Uh, and they need their father more than the paper needs you. And that was the kind of dilemma that people faced that they had no way to prepare for, Charlotte. They mm -hmm. didn't know what it would be. And in the case of John Hilsenrath, again, maybe because he believed the towers would not fall, he stayed. And uh, <clears throat> when they did fall, of course, he, he, you know, he ran with thousands of other people mm -hmm. and um, was covered in dust and debris, but still walking from the bottom of Manhattan, made his way to a colleague's home and reported from there. Uh, and I'm proud of that in terms of our profession. Our profession, Charlotte, you know well, has, has actually gotten a very bad reputation of late. Yes. Uh, people don't hold journalists in high opinion. But this is an example where Journalists really um, displayed their finest character on 9-11. Um, they, they won the Pulitzer Prize. <coughs> and um, it's a good role model for, um, for today's journalists and for people who mm -hmm. think about being a journalist. Well, it's like people don't realize. They think of police officers and firemen running into the, you know, running towards the fire. Well, journalists do the same thing. That's what we do. It's our job to go get the story. So we're going to run towards it along with everybody else. And I think that's what people don't realize is even like the war correspondents, let's say in Afghanistan, they're out there with the guys fighting. I mean, that's just what they do. And like you say, journalism has gotten a really bad rap, you know, as of late. But people have to really sit down and realize that, that the job's not all what you're seeing on TV and stuff. There, there's, the, there's the newspaper people like us that, that are out on, on the ground doing this stuff. So a lot of the Wall Street Journal reporters on 9-11 developed post-traumatic stress disorder afterwards. Um, some of them to this day, if they hear a plane fly over, mm -hmm. they shudder because they still remember the sound of those planes flying into the World Trade Center. Um, 
I mentioned John Hilsenrath. He mm -hmm. was weeks or months later, he was out with his kids in a riding stable, uh, watching, I guess, a niece do horseback riding. And on the barn wall were hanging chaps, you know, the leather, yeah. leather coverings for your legs. And he looked at them and they morphed in front of him into arms and legs hanging, oh. you know, hanging on, on the, on these hooks. And those types of stories are repeated throughout. We don't realize that. I also mm -hmm. want to mention um, another, I mean, there's so many human stories in this book, but uh, another one is there was a copy editor. Uh, his name was Richard Regis. Everybody called him Regis, which is not unusual in the news business to call somebody just by their last name. Well, Regis evacuated the Wall Street Journal headquarters. He had been there. He was down on, on the street, on the plaza, when the towers collapsed, um, caught in the dust cloud uh, that so many people and journal reporters were caught in, um, and didn't think much of it. He, he was kind of shaken up. Um, he finally made his way to his daughter's school. The, the Wall Street Journal is located where the World Trade Center is in lower Manhattan. He finally got to his daughter's school in, on the Upper East Side, and in subsequent court filings, the principal of that school wrote about the fact that Regis didn't look well. He looked um, ill, uh, you know, gaunt and, and seemed disoriented. Well, eventually it turned out that he had aspirated literally a piece of the World Trade Center. Oh. He had aspirated into his lungs. Within two or three days, he was in the hospital um, I don't remember. I don't remember how many times they read him last rites because mm -hmm. they, they, his, he had major organ failure, and the doctors did something really terrific, and they did something not very terrific. The really terrific is they managed to keep him alive, and after a great deal of rehabilitation, he went back to work at the Wall Street Journal. The not so terrific is they never really understood what made him sick in the first place. And so he kept in his lungs, unbeknownst to him and unbeknownst to the doctors, a souvenir from the World yeah. Trade Center for years. And only in uh, June of 2020 did he finally pass away and is listed as a World Trade Center victim because they did eventually find this stuff in his lungs and realized that that's what killed him. So there are there are interesting stories about it. Were they all in the office at, at the time that the first plane hit? If they were, there would have been a lot of casualties. Sure, that's what I was thinking. The Wall Street Journal, uh, people get it on their doorstep at, at the newsstand mm -hmm. in offices first thing early in the morning. What that means is it's produced late morning, all afternoon, and early evening. So most, literally most, of the staff had not reported in yet um, to the Wall Street Journal's headquarters. And that certainly prevented a great deal of casualties and injuries. But mm -hmm. it all created the opposite problem, which is they were spread all over the place mm -hmm. and they couldn't talk to one another. Um, and so I have, I, I did a couple of pieces writing about this. What were the lessons? I had a piece last week in Fortune Magazine. Yeah, well, not magazine, fortune.com. Mm -hmm talking about what were the management lessons right. that people could draw from my book 
and from what happened. You know, and, and one of the chapters in September 12th, an American comeback story, is 9-11 didn't happen in a day. That's what it's titled, 9-11 didn't happen in a day. And in fact, if the Wall Street Journal hadn't fostered a corporate culture that encouraged people to act independently so mm -hmm. that on 9-11, they didn't expect 9-11, but on 9-11, Charlotte, they didn't have to get instructions from a boss. They couldn't talk to anybody, but they right. said, well, what can I do? I'll go onto the street and I will start interviewing people, even though nobody told me to do it. Mm -hmm. And they had a pop-up newsroom, a newsroom that hadn't existed on September 10th, located 50 miles from Lower Manhattan in South Brunswick, New Jersey. Well, people who got there started to say the same thing. What needs to be done? How do we get this paper out tomorrow? Even though it's not my job, I'll do it. I'll do mm -hmm. whatever is needed to get it out. And that went from sort of the highest level, which was what's going to appear on the front page of the paper and who's going to write it and who's going to edit it to what you might think is the most trivial level, which was the, many of the people who showed up in South Brunswick, 50 miles from lower Manhattan, either came covered in dust mm -hmm. or simply came with the clothes on their back, but clearly would have no way to get back to Manhattan and uh, no way to change clothes. And so one of the senior editors went around and started interviewing people, particularly men. Are you a boxer or briefs person? Because she sent people out to go buy new clothes and wanted to know what kind of underwear they prefer. So from what's going to go on the front page tomorrow, who's going to edit it, who's going to write it, to what do you wear to make yourself comfortable? That's the kind of thing where people just said, I'm going to do what I think I can to contribute. I don't need instruction. My other question, too, is that, I mean, back then, I know I was in a small paper, but did you guys, um, or did they have the, the, the production staff for the paste up and all that stuff? Because back then it wasn't automated yet, I don't think. Yes, they did. The, the Wall Street Journal um, could be, they no longer had conventional composing rooms, like, okay. like, like maybe you worked at, when I worked at the Journal in different bureaus, literally people would take strips of copy and paste yep. it on and take a photo and paste it on. Mm -hmm. I, by September of 2001, that process still took place, but it took place electronically. Okay. It took place using a, a pagination system, kind of like consumers are probably familiar with uh, Adobe PageMaker or mm -hmm. Quark Express. Fairly easy to do, but it was a massively complex effort to use their digital um, pagination systems. In mm -hmm. order to get in order to get the paper out the next day, keeping in mind that most of the that many of the people who worked in that area um, couldn't report in, couldn't get to the South Brunswick pop-up facility. Um. So how did the stories actually get to the paper itself? I mean, like you say, there, there was no way for them to call in or anything. So did they have to physically bring the stuff in, or how did that work? There were, there was a lot of improvis improvisation and um, just creative ideas. I'll give you an example. One of the front page stories that appeared 
in the September 12th edition was written by a guy named John Busty, who kind of wrote a first-person story mm -hmm. that many people still think was one of the best stories ever to appear on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. It was a very gripping story. Well, he got caught up in, in the destruction, um, managed to catch some kind of a boat across the Hudson River to the um, New Jersey side, and from a payphone called, dictated a story into the Los Angeles Bureau using a payphone okay. because the Los Angeles Bureau still had communication and he didn't know who to call in New York because there was nobody left in New York. Right. Um, the Dallas Bureau, uh, the Dallas Bureau chief, a woman named Karen Blumenthal, she stepped up. Um, her bureau had a lot of response, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of responsibility for airline coverage. So she stepped up and was assigning people to write airline stories from Dallas as opposed to New York. The Washington Bureau in many ways became the main newsroom. Uh, it was one of the larger bureaus. They happened to have some people in Washington, which the other bureaus didn't necessarily have, who were copy editors. So most of the stories, let me hold this up. This is the paper. Let me see. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit. Uh, most of the stories on the front page, um, including, you know, the like this column here, Nation Stands in Disbelief and Horror, were really gathered and uh, reported not from Manhattan, but from Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, so it was, it really was sort of um, chewing gum, rubber bands, paper clips, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get that paper out. So for the guys, um, the reporters in New York, then they get their clothes changed. Did, did they go right back out? Well, they didn't. They changed their clothes in 50 miles away in South Brunswick. Right, right, right. And, and no, they didn't. They couldn't. Charlotte, they they couldn't get back once they okay. evacuated. And there is a story in September 12th about this. They they wouldn't let reporters, even accredited reporters, not just for the journal, for for every news right. organization, past police barriers. So one employee of the Wall Street Journal, a guy named Phil Connors, he was a copy editor on the Arts and Leisure page. Probably couldn't be any farther removed from being say, a fish out of water news, on that one. Than probably being a hard news uh, yeah. reporter than being the copy a copy editor on the Leisure and Arts page. But he didn't know that the building was evacuated. He felt this calling to say. I've got to get there. So he went up to the police barricade. He showed them his accreditation papers. And they said, I don't care if you're the president of the United States, we're not going to let you through. Mm -hmm. But Philip Connors didn't take no for an answer, as did many people at the journal wouldn't take no for an answer. So what he did is he wandered for a little while. And then he found a entrance to a subway station. And he, of course, there was nobody down there. The trains weren't running, but he went down into the bowels of the subway, literally onto the track, felt his way in the darkness along the walls until he got underground past the police perimeter, came back up. When he came up on the other side of police perimeter, nobody stopped him because everybody was still concerned with evacuating people and whatnot. They didn't expect civilians to be wandering around 
down there or trying to go into the area, uh, made his way to the entrance, the floor, the basic floor of the Wall Street Journal's offices, climbed up nine flights of stairs because the newsroom was on the ninth floor, the 10th floor, the 11th floor, got up to the ninth floor, again, not knowing that the newsroom had been destroyed, that mm -hmm. nobody was left there. So he comes out from the stairwell on the ninth floor, having gone through the subway and finds he's the only one in the newsroom. He's the only one there and still tries to figure out how to help. So he starts trying to email people to say, have you left your files here? Have you left your computers here? What can I bring you? What can I bring out? And then he, he gets ready to leave. He grabs a camera so he could take some photos because again, no camera phone. Um, and just as he's leaving, he hears a phone ringing and he's trying to debate, do I want do I want to answer this phone or not? But it's a persistent ring. And so he goes back into the newsroom and he discovers lo and behold, Charlotte, it's the phone on his desk. Someone is calling him. And so he picks it up. Hello, mom? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, no, I, I'm okay. Don't worry about me. His mother is calling wow. him at the at the paper. And so um, he has reassured her he's fine and left. And I mean, those are the types of, of, of tales. Again, a, a, a guy who's a copy editor on the Leisure and Arts page yes. who, who runs the gauntlet um, because he thought he could be helpful. And he's out taking photos, too. Out taking wow. Photos. Yeah. Wow. Pretty cool. And that was my other question about the photographers, because obviously the dark room was destroyed at that point. Well, look at the Wall Street Journal. They didn't run photos. They didn't okay. run photos back then. The Wall Street Journal was the grayest, most drab uh, newspaper you could find. No front page photos. This was on 9-11. You know, people used to joke that the two easiest jobs in journalism were being the photo editor for the Wall Street Journal and the sports editor for the Wall there Street Journal. There you go. Because, <laughs> you know, now that's all changed, Charlotte, because right. if, we, if I had today's paper, you'd see it's just full of color, not just on the front page, but throughout the paper, but that those changes, the paper changed in one day because on September 10th, uh, the front page of the Wall Street Journal had very little to do with news. They call it a newspaper, but they, but the main articles on the front page were three features, the mm -hmm. left-hand column, the middle column, and the right-hand column, and they were exchangeable. You could, you could have taken something that ran on the left-hand column on a Monday and run it on a Friday, and nobody would have thought twice about it because they were what you might call evergreen, or at least they were timely but didn't have to run on any particular day. I used to write for the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Sometimes I would submit a story and would sit there for two or three months before it would run out on the paper. Starting on September 12th, the front page transformed into a paper that regularly ran breaking news on the front page. It became, it became a true news paper with the emphasis on news. And then in April of 2002, they introduced color into the front page. In December of 2007, Rupert Murdoch uh, and his News Corp uh, bought the paper and um, put his own imprint on it. Many of the 
many of the editors and reporters left or were asked to leave. He brought in his own team, at least at the top of the paper, uh, to run the paper. So it was September 11th was very transformative for the mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. And what about the, you know, about the reporters, um, like you say, that, that they've had after effects from, from what they witnessed, obviously. And from what I've seen, a video, because there was a gentleman down there that was um, doing a documentary on, on the fire departments. Yeah. And, I mean, it got, it got bad with the dust. You couldn't even see what was going on. And here no. these guys are out there with their notepads. Well, yeah. Again, for the most part, um, the journal reporters did not return to ground zero mm -hmm. in the immediate days after 9-11. In fact, there really wasn't that much to report from ground zero. Again, they were not a photographic-centric newspaper to take pictures right. of it. Um, most of what they needed to know from FEMA or from the White House, the Department of Defense, etc., was not happening on Ground Zero. But I, I will tell you, I have, I have in the book at the at the back of this book, I've got um, five chapters um, at the back of the book about um, what's called Five Lives. <clears throat> the day after, on September twelfth. Five, the journal assigned five reporters to find five families who were impacted by the collapse of the World Trade Center and to basically spend a month with them to find out um, how it impacted them. What the journal didn't tell people right off the bat when the story eventually appeared one month later, October 11, 2001, it said, we're gonna profile these five people but it, doesn't, it didn't really tell them right away how many of them were still alive and how many were dead. It turns mm -hmm. out four of the five people profiled had perished in the World Trade Center. And one of the things that the journal did in assigning this, it said, you know, we don't want to write about executives, CEOs, whatnot. We want to find real people, if you will, um, and what it meant. And so they found a fellow who had been a chef in the win on the Windows on the World restaurant on the 106th floor of the World Trade Center who died um, on 9-11. They found um, another guy who was on the phone to almost the very last minute with his wife um, just before the building collapsed. He was talking to her and, and uh, neighbors and friends came over to his home and we're trying to give him advice, including a physician, as to how to breathe with all the smoke that was filling the room. And so, again, the journal kind of, it, it did a really good job. The, the Pulitzer Committee awarded it, Charlotte, for comprehensive and insightful coverage executed under the most difficult circumstances. I've described the difficult circumstances, but the reality of it is, they did a good job of, mm -hmm. of analysis, of talking about, say, here's one of the headlines. Hour of horror forever alters American lives. Attacks will force people to make adjustments in ways large and small. Here's another story. U.S. airport security screening long seen as dangerously lax. Attacks raise fears of a recession. I mean, so the journal still stepped back a little bit. And gave people analysis as to 
what this was likely to lead to. It um, it launched the next day. A it took again it took five reporters off the story immediately and said, "Go out and find five lives we can profile." Uh -huh. uh, and and that's that's pretty that's pretty uh, uses a lot of foresight to say we ought to do that. We ought, we we want to. It's not just we're not just covering what happened yesterday. We really want to talk about how this impacted people's lives. You talk about um, various emails that, that you were able to read through. Can, can you enlighten us on some of those? Um, I should have I should have brought. I have a whole binder. I should have brought it with me, but they're they're really pretty incredible, Charlotte. They're people people either reporting in saying I am alive, or people reporting in saying who's alive. Um, I can't get in touch with people. Uh, one one reporter um, sending in an email saying that a different reporter to try to escape the smoke jumped into the Hudson River, um, oh. and what that was. Uh, I intentionally in the book, when I don't reprint obviously all of them, but I re oh. re reprint some of them. And when you read them, part of the chilling part of it is they were so in such a hurry to get the emails out. They didn't care about spelling. They didn't care about grammar, capitalization. So a, a lot of these pieces are, um, you almost have to decipher them to understand what the reporters were saying. Um, there was a, one of the reporters, Mike Waldholtz, um, sent in an email saying, uh, he, I think he was in, in London, um, saying that his community back in New Jersey, apparently there were a lot of people who lost family members, um, but he was notifying them from London. So the journal had a global staff, and not only were the people who had been at Ground Zero sending emails, but literally people all over the world um, were sending in emails. There, there was a decent amount of reporting from the suburbs, particularly the New Jersey suburbs, saying schools are closing, um, people have, uh, you know, people have lost, there are communities that have lost a lot of, of members. Um, the, the different bureaus sent in emails, you know, the Chicago Bureau sent an email saying that the Sears Tower is evacuating as a precaution and closing. In San Francisco, they sent an email saying the Transamerica uh, building is evacuating and sense, closing. Yeah. In, in Florida, Disney World evacuated. In California, Disneyland didn't open. But what makes it chilling is that these were all coming in real time. And so mm -hmm. there, you know, you're getting these emails one after another after another with reports. And again, there's no there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook. They're, really for these people to share real-time observations and news updates um the, the only way they could do it and really the only way they could communicate was through email and the book relies upon this more than a thousand of these emails to help reconstruct uh, the timing and uh, what happened and i also did dozens of interviews charlotte with uh, the people who worked that day it's just amazing to me because the way the technology was, like you say, with AOL dial-up, right. that things didn't get overloaded when all these emails were starting to get fired off. They did. They did. In fact, and again, we, I talk about it in the book that, that, that the systems got so jammed up 
at times the emails the, the emails didn't get through or they mm -hmm. came through substantially later than when they were sent we think of email as being instantaneous transmission mm -hmm. but in fact the systems were overloaded with emails and what complicated it was that people didn't know so i don't know i can give you a specific example but there are multiple multiple examples of <clears throat> journalists who didn't know who was alive who was dead mm -hmm. who had access to email or not so they carbon copied they cc'd their emails to everybody and then when somebody would reply they would reply to everybody so it wasn't so one email was sort of ricocheted you know hundreds and hundreds of times which clogged the system the system did clog and for example mm -hmm. the dallas bureau it shut down for a while well i remember the old days well even it even happens now sometimes with even at&t where you'll you know something big will happen you're on the phone or earthquake or something and then we'll say oh call can't go through that's right call can't, call can't go through at this moment and um it's pretty uh, it's pretty frustrating when that when that happens the other thing i wanted to say to you is this that um there is kind of a uh, loosely dotted line between 9-11 and the coronavirus shutdowns uh -huh. um, in part because now again technology has advanced but in part because 9-11 in some ways was a dress rehearsal for converting a newsroom to a completely remote work from home newsroom the prospect in march of 2020 or february 2020 of sending all your employees home and telling them to work from home was not nearly as daunting in part because when the technology was still so primitive the wall street journal proved it could be done some of the people who worked for the wall street journal on 9-11 went on to become top editors at the new york times at reuters at bloomberg at mm -hmm. fortune um, at usa today literally these were people they at the time of 9-11 they were on the payroll of the wall street journal but over the years that ensued they found themselves in senior leadership roles at major national news organizations and of course they still have the institutional memory of what it would take to work remotely the wall street journal was not able to return to its decimated new york newsroom and headquarters for 11 plus months that's how long with no with no true prior planning they had to figure out how to run an entire news organization remotely for the next 11 months and and many of the people actually never returned to the headquarters uh, for two or three reasons one is the wall street journal decided to com to comp to uh, continue to have a contingent of copy editors and proofreaders and keep them permanently at what was the pop-up newsroom in South Brunswick. So a contingent of the staff that used to work in Lower Manhattan wasn't asked to return. Then other people left the paper and they they didn't want to return. There's To this day, there are editors who don't want to go into Lower Manhattan, reporters who don't want to go into because the it's, it's a trigger for memories that are 
are too difficult. And then finally, some group of people just said, I can work from home, uh, I can work remotely, uh, and I'm going to continue to do that. Um, but it was, you know, it, it kind of was a precursor to the newsroom evacuations surrounding coronavirus. Absolutely. The other thing people have to remember, too, is there weren't laptops back then either because the laptops they had were big and clunky. Because I remember I was one of the first reporters to take a laptop out in the field, but it was big and clunky, you know. Or I had one of those Palm PCs. HP had a Palm PC out that had a keyboard that folded out. And then you could, like, move the stuff over. But, I mean, it wasn't like it is now. You didn't have this access to this stuff, so it was all pretty much writing it, you know, writing it down by hand and then get, get into a computer somewhere or a typewriter. That's right. One of the reporters, a gentleman named Phil Kuntz, he got caught up in the, he was on the street, he got caught up in the smoke and debris, ran with the crowd to the very tip of Manhattan Island, South Ferry. Um, and people start, start getting so crowded there, they were afraid they were going to end up getting pushed uh, into the bay at the very oh. south end. There was a restaurant there at the time, and people wanted to go inside the restaurant. It was a large restaurant that could accommodate up to 2,000 people. And the restaurant people, there were workers inside. Keep in mind, this was the morning, and there, this was not uh, a breakfast right. place. They didn't want to let the crowd in. They were fearful of this crowd. And so Phil Koontz, one of the things he did is he was pounding on the door and he said, I'm a police officer, let me in. Of course, he wasn't a police officer. He was a, he was a journalist. That didn't work. And then people found chairs, metal chairs from the outdoor patio. <clears throat> and they eventually uh, used the chairs to break through the glass uh, on the doors and windows. And they went into, they went into this restaurant. And, and once the people were already inside, then the restaurant staff began to hand out water bottles, help people wash out their eyes, things along those lines. But he eventually had to be evacuated again. They, they, the police and others didn't let them stay there. And so he got onto some kind of a boat and not from a dock. What would happen is these ferries and other boats would pull up as close as they could get um, to the shoreline mm -hmm. and people would jump across or they'd get pulled across onto boats. So he got a boat and then they dropped him off someplace, I think Hoboken, New Jersey. And there he is and he's standing there. And he had been taking notes and he had good stories to tell, but he didn't know what to do with them. And so he wandered for a while, Charlotte. And he, he didn't know where he was going. He wasn't familiar with the area. And eventually he saw an elementary school and went into the elementary school and said, I'm a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and I, I need to file my story, but I don't have a phone and I don't have a computer. And they led him to the principal's office of an elementary school. And she said, sure, take my office. Oh. And, so, and so he sat down in her, in her office. He wrote up his notes on her computer and filed his notes for the story. Another, another example, uh, there is a woman reporter for the Wall Street Journal named Ianthi Dugan. And Ianthi um, was driving into Manhattan on the morning of 9-11, got, got to lower Manhattan, uh, saw what was going on, did a U-turn, went, went back 
towards upper Manhattan and eventually thought, well, I'm going to go to my mom's place in Pennsylvania and I'll work from there. So she drives to her mom's place in Pennsylvania. And, um, but the internet connection there is really lousy and, and needs a dial up and her mom needs the phone, etc. So it took a couple days, Charlotte, but she stayed there and worked from, from rural Pennsylvania, eventually, either because she knew it or she asked, wanted to know where, what was the, if there was a business, a, a mainstream business near this rural place that her mom lived. Um, and what she discovered was that the publishing company that puts out the kids magazine, Highlights for Children, um, many people know Highlights for Children. It, it's a magazine that you'll often find in a in a pediatric dentist office mm -hmm. or a medical office, and they have, you know, they have little games and puzzles and whatnot. Highlights for Children has been around for a long, long time. So she went to their office. She didn't know though them and said, "I'm a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. Um, I've been stranded sort of here in Pennsylvania for a few days. I need a good internet connection and phones." And they gave her a desk and and a they gave her a desk and a phone and a phone extension. So How cool is that? It's not like cool, but listen to this part. So then she would call people and she would say, this is the Auntie Dugan. She'd leave a voice message. This is the Auntie Dugan with the Wall Street Journal. I'm working on a story. Uh, please call me back and here's my number, whatever the number was. Well, if people called back and, and there wasn't a live operator available, what they got was, hello, you've reached highlights for children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> please leave a message so she had to try to explain to people why if they called her back they reached highlights for children not the wall street journal you know that's great that's a great story it's, it's pretty fun it's pretty fun um, we've got so, stories there's stories in september 12th for cat lovers there's stories in september uh, how how two reporters for the wall street journal rescued their stranded cat who had been left behind. Um, there's a story in there about the managing editor of the Wall Street Journal and um, how he ended up winning over uh, the heart of his wife because he treated her dog so well and another suitor uh, to this to this attractive young woman um, dismissed the dog and thought the dog you know, looked stupid, whereas the managing editor, Paul Steiger, um, flattered the dog, etc. So there's some there's some stories in there for pet lovers. There's but in the end, it's in the end, Charlotte, it's not a story about the Wall Street Journal. Uh -huh. And it's not even a story about 9-11. It's uh -huh. a story about resilience and a refusal to be defeated by terrorists, which they did not want to be defeated by. And it is a story that involves coming back. That's why I call it an American comeback story. At the beginning of the book, I have a quote from Vince Lombardi, the, the football legend, uh, and it says, "The real glory is being not is being knocked to your knees and then coming back." That's what the book is about. These are not superstar reporters; they're mm -hmm. not hardened war correspondents. They're people, really, Charlie, like you and me, who mm -hmm. are journalists who take their profession seriously. Um, but who never expected to find themselves um, in the epicenter 
um, of such a tragic event. Well, I was thinking when you were telling me this, you know, talking about this is that you know, we're like anybody else. When the first plane hit, I'm sure everybody was at the windows, you know, looking out to see what the heck was going on, you know, no. and that's the way we are. Well, absolutely. You know, there was, um, there's, people can find it still on YouTube, and I suspect because of the 20th anniversary, um, it's been more popular lately. But um, CNBC, which was doing normal coverage until the first plane hit, uh -huh. uh, posted like seven hours of its broadcast day starting before the before the plane hit and the anchors there is is talking to some incredibly boring you know investment expert who is droning on and on about something or another and then the anchor is mark haynes and mark haynes says and i'm paraphrasing um we're, i'm going to have to interrupt you now um, is that the world trade center you know and what we see is is the camera is showing from the nbc studios at Rockefeller Center, it has a view and you see first just the North Tower um, with smoke billowing out of the North Tower. And Mark Haynes, who passed away, unfortunately, but he's he was the main anchor. And then some of the other morning um, uh, hosts on CNBC, they're talking about what it could be, what it might be. Um, initially, most people thought most people thought it was an accident. Mm -hmm. Most people thought it was some plane that, for some stupid reason, flew into the World Trade Center. It's only when the second plane um, hit that everybody understand, no, this is terrorism. This was not an accident. It turned out roughly 60 years earlier. Um, if I had a better recall, it's because it's, the story is in the book. I don't remember the exact date. Mm -hmm. But um, in the 40s, um, a plane did, by accident, fly into the Empire State Building and caused a lot of damage, and there was some loss of life there, but the, but the Empire State Building didn't collapse. Um, and it may have something to do with, with modern construction, the World Trade Center, versus earlier construction. Maybe the buildings were, were built better uh, mm -hmm. when, when the Empire State Building was but that was a bona fide mistake. The plane didn't mean to do it. And also, though, when the Empire State Building was struck, uh, it was struck on a cloudy day. So you could potentially understand it. September 11th, the morning of September 11th, the skies were crystal clear. They were blue skies. Um, but nonetheless, nobody expected this. So everybody's instinctive response was, this must be an accident. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. What do you think the lessons for people coming out of J school are after this? I think there are a lot of lessons. One is I think they can, even though others are telling them opposite, I think they can feel proud of the profession that they've chosen to go into. Um, it is an honorable profession. Uh, people on, imagine if there had not been news coverage on 9-11, um, mm -hmm how the public would be would have been left in the dark and, and there was and so the first message to people coming out of j school is you've chosen an honorable profession i think there are other messages that come out one one is to actually be prepared um, to be flexible in 
what kind of reporter you are. So maybe you think you're a fashion reporter. Maybe you think you're an entertainment reporter. Maybe you think you're a city hall reporter. But if you come upon a story um, that no one else has come upon or that everyone else has come upon, but, you, but your news organization, um, your podcast, whatever it is, needs coverage, you are a spot news reporter. You're a breaking news reporter. It's not, it's not the adjective that comes before reporter that counts. Entertainment, business, fashion. It's the, it's the noun that comes after the adjective. You are a reporter. And I think journalists need to be prepared for that and not, and get, not get into a mindset that that's not my story. Uh-huh. Any story can be, any story can be your story. Um, I think the day will come when journalism students become newsroom managers and there are a great deal of lessons in there for newsroom managers, including um, empower your employees, empower young journalists and others to make calls on their own when it's impossible for them to um, get instructions. You know, let that give them that. One of the things that I mentioned in the uh, Fortune article that I wrote is that the journal had a policy of always praising frequently and publicly and criticizing as infrequently and privately as possible. And that's good to help build up um, journalists' um, self-confidence. Self-confidence counts an awful lot um, when it comes to effective newsroom. And the other thing is that um, the Wall Street Journal um, encouraged reporters to take risks in order to increase their um, journalistic edge. They mm-hmm. they want the Wall Street Journal is very competitive with the New York Times, the Financial Times, uh, you know Bloomberg, Reuters. They so the management style was to say take risks, uh, reasonable but take risks. And when those risks didn't pan out. Um, the journal basically would say to whoever took the risk, move on, don't, don't dwell. You know, you're a good reporter, um, you're a good writer, um, you're a good speaker, uh-huh. uh, move on, don't, don't dwell on it. And it's, it really reminds me, Charlotte, of how you coach a good sports team. So right. the team has a loss. It has a disappointing loss, whether it's soccer, baseball, volleyball, whatever it happens to be. If you're a good coach, you don't sit there and dwell on what went wrong. You try to learn from it, but you move forward. You look forward. I've always been impressed um, with athletes who make incredibly costly mistakes. Um, And then really, whether it's the next play, the next volley, the next whatever it is, uh, get back on their horses, so to speak, uh, and are ready to play again. That's the Well, that's the that's the sign of a really terrific athlete. I think that's also the sign uh, of a really professional journalist. If you make a mistake, um, learn from it and move forward. Absolutely. I have one more question for you, and this is something I used to add on to my business stories. Okay. And, and the question is, you're in Las Vegas on the Strip. Yes. And there's a bunch of other guys out there with books about 911, you know. And um, how do you get people to buy your book? Um, I'm very good at begging. 
I just, <laughs> I, I, I learned this. I would beg sources when I was at the Wall Street Journal. I would beg editors. Um, you know, again, when I, with the way I think September 12th differs from virtually all of the 9-11 reflective um, books that I have read. Mm -hmm. I've read most of them. I've, I've got a bookshelf full of them is it meant it it's more inspiring it's more um it's more about the comeback it's more about okay we got knocked to our knees but we're picking ourselves up it's more forward thinking uh it you know i i'm i was aware always um that i was racing a deadline to get the book out before the 20th anniversary because mm -hmm. i knew my journalistic instinct told me that there would be heightened interest uh, ahead of the 20th anniversary. But the reality of it is, Charlotte, I'd like to, um, in some ways, get rid of the top part of what it says here, which is <clears throat> ground zero on 9-11 with the Wall Street Journal, and just promote the book as September 12th, an American comeback story. It, it, what counts is what began not on 9-11, but uh -huh. what this nation began to do on September 12th. And I hope this book will be a perennial read, something that you can read in February of 2022, in March of 2025, um, you know, in uh, September of uh, 2031, and it will still strike a chord with you um, and leave you in the end with a sense that, um, that the American spirit is resilient. And even though I know between now and 2031, we will face other national tragedies and mm -hmm. they're painful and there's absolutely no way to, to measure how painful they are. But it would be great if this book helps remind people that there is a morning after and that we will pick ourselves up <clears throat> and we will come back as a country. Absolutely. How do people get a hold of you? How do, how do, how do people find you? Um, I run up and down the streets waving my foot. <laughs> so they could try that. Um, let me give you a few. Let me give you a few things. Literally, if they would like to write me, um, they can do so at. Well, here's the thing. The, the easiest way is to actually go to our our website, which is September-12th.com. September-12th.com. The book is available from Amazon, but for many of us who prefer that helps smaller businesses and, and not necessarily support Jeff Bezos. Um, I've set up a site called gutenbergstore.com, Gutenberg, one T, G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G-S, and then store, S-T-O-R.com. So one T, two S, gutenbergstore.com. If you buy your book from there, I will sign every copy personally uh, that is sold from there. It's available there in hardback and soft cover. And um, like Amazon, there's no Amazon Prime, there'd be no shipping. And unlike Amazon, in the United States, I won't, I'll include sales tax in the price. So if you don't want, if you want, if you want it tomorrow, you're a Prime member, you can buy it on Amazon. If you, um, if you want it soon, um, and you don't want to necessarily buy everything from Amazon. You can buy it from gutenbergstore.com. You get a signed copy, no sales tax in the United States and no shipping in the United States. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much. This was great. I, 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 don't say, I don't want to say I enjoyed it, but I did, you know, because it was fascinating to me because it's not something to enjoy, really. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, thank you. Know you. Thank you. And, and Charlotte, it is special that you're a journalist uh, in your core um, and you ask excellent questions and you kept the conversation flowing. So um, I salute you. And I certainly am going to become a regular listener uh, to California Haunts Radio. So thank Scared you. Scared of that. Okay, sounds great. <laughs> sounds great. Um, I'd like to get you on again at some point. Maybe we can talk about your upcoming books or, or whatever you have. Lots of good stuff. I do have a weekly podcast, okay. mondaymorningradio.com. Monday morning now I'm going to have to listen to that, see? No, you can't. It, it's really about how to be a more effective small business person and entrepreneur. I've been doing cool. it since 2012. Fantastic. All right, you have a good evening, and thank you, Dean. I really appreciate it. I mean, thank this you. was this is fantastic. Thank you. Good have night. a good, good yeah, night. Thank you. Well, that was really fascinating, and um, wow, all I can say is wow. You know, a lot of people have stories about about uh, September 11th. I have one. Uh, uh, small papers are a lot different than bigger papers because the, the, the staffs, of course, are smaller, and at the paper I was working at, at the time, I was the assistant editor, and the editor had taken two weeks off, and that meant that I was on the co- I was on the desk. So I was not only playing, I was not only editor, I was the copy editor, and you know, every kind of editor. And I remember I had been working twelve-hour shifts because our deadlines were you know could be anywhere from eight p.m. to eleven p.m. in the evening, but we started at like eight a.m. because we were a daily paper. And so by the time my day off rolled around, because he was coming in, I think it was a Monday. I'm trying to remember if it was a Monday or Tuesday. But he was coming, finally coming back to work. So I had um, gotten, you know, a week off following that because I had worked two, two weeks straight. And I was exhausted. So I went home the night before, collapsed, got up the next day. My family, we were going to go for a, ride, a daily ride, got up um, half asleep, went to eat some pancakes. And I happened to look up at the TV. My, my father was watching the TV. And then the Pentagon was on fire. And I didn't even give it a second thought. You know, I just thought, well, something's going on at the Pentagon. So maybe because I was tired, it didn't do anything for me. But to tell you the truth, uh, working as, as intensely as I did, by the time I got home, um, I used to have this saying about uh, sitting in front of the TV and letting the drool drip. And that's that's how you feel because you're just... You're just numb because you're sitting there and all day long you've got the AP wire in front of you, you know, and phones are ringing off the hook. And and you're at that point where you don't want to deal with anything like that. And so I would turn the phone ringers off at home and I would just veg. So I no sooner got my first two bites of my food into my mouth and the phone rings and it's my boss. And he says, you got to come in now. There's a situation. He didn't tell me what the situation was. So. I was grumbly, and I said, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. So I, I showered and all that, got in the car, drove in, and um, the paper was 15, 20 miles away from my house, so I had to take the freeway out there, past the international airport. And as I was passing the international airport, I, you know, being in a foul mood because I really didn't want to go in, to be honest, um, I remember seeing about 30 black sedans take the off-ramp. And that's when I realized that something big had happened because I knew it was the FBI going, you know, it was the feds 
literally going into the airport. And by the time I got to work, I knew, you know, that, like I said, something big had happened. So when I got in and got it, got my adjustments done and, you know, started looking at the AP wire and stuff that was coming in over the wire, that's when it all hit me that, you know, there had been a terrorist attack. And I remember part of my assignment for that day was to call around because Sacramento is the capital of California. And so my part of my assignment for that day was to call around and talk to the, to the governor and, and talk to the different legislatures downtown. You know, the, the legislators, sorry, downtown. And I remember talking to one and she said, you know, it's funny because we were just coming into work. We didn't know what was going on either. And there's a bunch of sharpshooters up on the roof of all the state buildings. And for us, the federal police that guard the governor is the California Highway Patrol. So they had people up on, on, on the buildings with, with, you know, the SWAT teams with guns up there, you know, watching everything. So that was one of the things I got out of it, you know, that, that, that I had to cover and all that, all the security that was going on that and what was going on at the airport and stuff. So that was my experience covering stuff for that day. But, uh, but that's, that's life in the newsroom. You know, you, 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 you go to work at eight in the morning. Uh, you might not get off at five, like you're supposed to, there might be an accident or something that you got to go running off to, you know, it's, it's, it can be a very lonely life. But uh, it's a fun, it's a, it's, it's a rewarding career and a rewarding life to do it, if you, know, if you want to go that way. Anyway, changing gears here. Tomorrow is going to be an interesting day because it's going to be a 2 o'clock show. Because my guests are from England. So we're going to do an early show tomorrow. It's the Kinsella Twins. And they are going to be on talking about their UFO encounters. And they've been abducted a couple, a few times, and, and they have a very interesting story to tell. So uh, you guys can tune in for that at 2 p.m. If you like today's show, please share it with five people. If you didn't like today's show, share it with five of your enemies. Again, we are nonprofit, so everything for the show comes out of my pocket. So if you can find it in your heart to donate at paypal.me at California Haunts, I would really appreciate it. Any little bit helps. I have to keep supporting this, and, uh, you know, with COVID and everything, yeah, things are, it is what it is. But anyway, also, I'd like you to subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, it's kind of hard to do that because I need over 100 subscribers to get my own U URL to direct people to my YouTube channel, and we do not have that. And I have tried several different ways to figure out how to get to my YouTube channel, and I cannot figure one out. The only way we can do that is you can go to the radio website at www.californiahauntsradio.com and click on one of the videos there that'll take you into the YouTube site. And then you can click on subscribe. The more subscribers I have, the more chance I'm going to have of getting that URL that's going to point directly to YouTube. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming on, for, for coming in and watching this. I know you got your dinners, and I know California, we got the recall election going on. And um, I'm just really glad you joined me tonight. And uh, I will see you tomorrow at 2 p.m. Pacific time for the Kinsella Twins.